Alrighty, so ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Happy 2016. Kind of had a small hiatus here. Uh, Travis Marziani, co-host, and me, Tara Lynn, we're back here with the podcast. So how's it going, Travis? Really good. So, so far this year, we've already had a record month and we're recording this around the 25th. We broke the record right around the 20th. And so far, we've done over 60K in revenue. Before that, our peak month was November at 50, 53K in revenue or something like that. So things are going well and I'm really excited. Yeah, it's good that you're January speaking because most people, I think January usually dips after the holidays. Like everyone I've talked to is like, you know, November, great, December, even better. And then January is like, oh, it's like lukewarm a little bit. Too, I th- so. Yeah, I think January in my industry usually is pretty good anyways, but I've been implementing some of the things we'll talk about in this episode that I think's really helped our business. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I guess because if dance teams are back at school again after the holidays, they're probably going to ramp up for the spring and all these competitions. Yeah, there's spring recitals. Yeah, and then fall, uh, not end of the month, end of like summer, beginning of summer, like right at the end of the school season, there's recitals and stuff. So everyone's getting ready for that. Uh, gotcha. Cool. And uh, I guess you're moving to Vegas too. What's the deal with this one? I am. I'm moving to Vegas. I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I'm going to take the YouTube channel a lot more seriously. So I'm doing, for those that don't know, I have an e-commerce YouTube channel. The old channel and the old name is probably going to get stopped, but I'm going to release it under a new name that I'll talk about soon. Uh, one more teaser thing I want to say is the mastermind, we still have the mastermind open. So if anyone wants to join, it's been going really well. You can go to buildmyonlinestore.com slash apply. And all the sessions we've had so far have been amazing. So Yeah, cool. And then uh, I guess for me, kind of something unrelated to e-commerce, I guess. Uh, so I started DJing with my friend uh, two months ago. and We have our first gig actually next Tuesday. So by the time this comes out, it'll be that week. Wicka, so. wicka. <laughs> yeah it's just something for fun and you know like i think we've been spending like one day out of the week every sunday just messing around so you know what might as well see what the mvp is like you know what's the minimum viable thing you need to get started and then just you know see where this goes for fun so yeah do you make a decent amount of money doing that in vietnam i feel like that'd be cheap i think the average dj only gets paid like a hundred bucks per show or something but like for, for us like it's not our main source of income like we're just doing this for fun so it's not like a huge you know thing for us Sounds good. Yeah. Alrighty. So let's get into this. So today we're talking about uh, five ways to kind of grow your store in 2016 that kind of are a little more unusual or not talked about. So number one, handwritten notes. Handwritten notes is one of the big things that I credit my business growth to. So like I said, we're probably going to grow about 50% in revenue over the last three months. And handwritten notes is what it is. So what I've been doing is writing, or not me personally, I have one of our employees write handwritten notes to anyone that makes an order above $250. And this ties in perfectly to what you've heard me talk about before is like take care of your whales, all that kind of stuff. So one of the, what we do is we try to make it as personal as possible. Sometimes we don't know anything about them. Maybe we do a little bit of you know Facebook stocking or see if there's something that we could comment about that they maybe they just want a competition or anything like that. So this is how it's broken down basically. After someone makes a purchase of over $250 from our site, about a month or so later, we write a handwritten note. And in that note, you know, we try to say all the things. Um, so anyways, then we send it to them. And we did this. We had a lot of people in the past few years that have bought an over $250. So we send it to all those people. But now it's a, a systematic thing. So every few days we look, hey, do we need to write any more notes? And it's worked. We've been getting people... Uh, no one's actually commented specifically, to my knowledge, about the card, but we've been getting way more repeat business. We also sometimes follow up with a phone interview or a phone, not interview, just a phone call to say, hey, want to make sure you liked everything. And we've gotten a surprising number of people 
that after we make that call on the spot say, oh, yeah, you guys are amazing. We want to place an order right now. So we're seeing that this is getting results. So you're seeing that the same people you send the cards to, their orders are coming in on the website with the same names or... Oh yeah, I mean they have the same customer ID and everything. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Cool. And like in the notes, like how long are these notes? Like this is like you know two or three sentences or. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's really just two or three sentences. I try to have our employees write something that is kind of different. It can't just be like, "Hey, thanks for the purchase. You know, please buy again from us." It's got to be, "Oh, I hope you enjoyed you know your high waist shorts for your dance competition. I saw you guys won." Congratulations. It, the more personal we can do it, the better. Yeah, because you're just doing yeah. vanilla notes that are carbon copy. No one's going to take that seriously, too. Cause no. Yeah, exactly. kind of like being a fraud with the personal side of it. Like you're trying to be personal, but it's actually like tricking people. I still think even if you did the handwritten notes and it was not completely personal, it's better than nothing. It's better than a postcard. I mean, I've only once in my life gotten a handwritten note, and it was after a company screwed up an order that they sent me. And I remember getting that and thinking, that's really cool. Like, that's different, you know? Gotcha. And so how many notes are you writing, like, giving your customer base right now, like, on, like, a weekly basis? Um, I'd say it's probably 15 or so. So it's, it's a not, decent... Not that bad. Yeah. Pretty manageable. No. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I only do this for our, our best customers. I don't do this for everyone. I, only the people that I think really can come back and buy again from us. Yeah. So I guess one thing that's we got to look into is that Given your average order, you're filtering above 250. Like for an average store owner listening to this, like, would you suggest they just do the 80 20 of their order sizes and take it from there? Because 250 may not be across the board for everyone, too, right? So, so I'll say two things. One, do definitely do the 80 20. If you see a lot of people are buying, you know, whatever, wherever you see that breaking point of where it's disproportionate, um, like a disproportionate influx. Where, where's most your revenue coming from? Is it mostly coming from people that buy over a hundred dollars worth of stuff? Over, you know, whatever it is, or maybe there's only three people that most your revenue is coming from. So that's the eighty twenty analysis. The second thing I'll say, and I really, really believe this: if you're just starting off and you don't have that many sales, pick up the phone, call them, and say, "Hey, you know, thank you for your order. It means a lot." Ask them a question. Ask them, you know, how can I improve our service or whatever. So if you're just first, first starting off, don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to actually go in and do some manual work. You notice that if people are willing to give you their money already, they're not that agnostic to talking to you, actually. Like if they went to that step already, like usually it's not like, you know, as long as you're not annoying. Them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing if you call and say, hey, can you reorder again? It's a completely different thing if you say, hey, you know, I'm Terry from ballerwallets.com. Uh, and I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for the purchase. But I had a quick question about whatever. And I think most people, if I got a call like that, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like this is the owner of the company that I just spent, you know, 50 bucks with. Yeah, I got a minute or two. But if you try to start selling me something, I'm like, ah, oh, no, I'm busy. Whatever. All right, so that's that's handwritten notes. We're pretty straightforward. Uh, so I guess the summary is to look at, look at your order history, see where the 80-20 is, where most of the revenue is coming from. Is it from a certain type of group of people? Um, are they bundling stuff or whatever? And then uh, see what makes sense for you to start writing handwritten notes too. So uh, next one, PLA. So I guess we talked about PLAs before, but a little more unorthodox strategy here. We're going to go over. So I guess what you had was uh, every product should have its own ad group. So why is this? That is one of the things, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make when they have a PLA. They start their own product listing or Google shopping ads. Every product should have its own ad group for a few different reasons. The most important is if you have 
let's say an ad group with multiple products in it, it's very hard to tell. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to tell wh which ones are getting clicks and which ones are converting. Because when you go to segment your data, it's going to say this ad group, which, can say, which contains five different products, is doing poorly. And you don't know, maybe one of those products is doing amazing and the other four are just doing really bad. But if you have it segmented into five different ad groups, you can say this one ad group and this one product is doing well. These four others are failing. Let's turn those four failing ones off. So that's why it needs to have its own ad group. There's a lot of other reasons as well. Talk about negative keywords and things like that. But that's the number one big one. So how do you, do you set different bids at the ad group level too then? Cause, or is it like, cause you got to change each of those too from there also, right? Oh, 100%. And, and I think you should because imagine, once again, uh, you have one product that you're willing to spend $3 a click on and another one that you're not willing to spend more than $0.50 cents a click on. If you put them in the same ad group and they all have the same bid price, that's insane. That's, true, that's yeah, just you're not going to yeah. be able to rebid more on the one you want to and the other ones are just tied together with that main bid. Yeah, I and it's not that much work to set up. I think a lot of people think this is starting to get too granular. I don't think it is at all. So let's say you had 50 products. My recommendation would be to put it into five to 10 logical separate campaigns. And then within each of those campaigns, let's say you did 10 campaigns because you had 10 different types of items. Within each of those 10 campaigns, there should be five ad groups. And so you'd have five times 10, which is 50 total ad groups, each ad group having its own product. Does that make sense? So you would do category by campaign like i product, would like it, your product category is the campaign level but your ad group is the product level for each ad. exactly yeah so let's say um yeah I, I don't know a good example a good example might be like you had jewelry and you had one campaign could be rings another could be uh, necklaces another could be whatever or if you really wanted to get granular which i would recommend uh let's say you had one campaign that's rings by a certain designer Another one is rings by a different designer and the next one could be necklaces by a certain designer and so on and so on. And the reason that you'd want to do this is one, it makes it easier to read and determine. You could say rings by, you know, Farazi, I'm just making up a name, Farazi is doing really well, but rings by this other person's doing very poorly. It helps you segment data, but on top of that, it helps you add negative keywords in bulk. And this, I know this for a lot of people listening, this starts to get a little bit um, much for a podcast, but are you following me so far? Yeah, so you're saying you can be more surgical with your negative keywords based on the product instead of bundling it with a whole group of things too, right? Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, if you have... 50 ad groups, for instance, under one campaign, that's harder to read and manage. If you have five cam or five ad groups under each, under 10 different campaigns, it's much easier to read. It's much easier to like organize and search through things. Um, there's just a, a lot of benefits yeah, to that. Because you're basically looking at a product list, essentially, when you're looking at all your ad groups. Yes, exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess if you were to set this up in each ad group, you would use the product ID to separate this or how would you yeah so you the way you do it and you know I'll, I'll make a when I do eventually do the YouTube channel which will hopefully be soon I'll make a video on this more detail but basically within the ad group you add uh, the product ID and it'll create a separate little line item and then it'll say that ID and then it'll also the other line will say everything else go to the everything else click on the bid price and you'll be able to click exclude at which point the only product that ad group will show is the one that you want it to show. 
Gotcha. So you're choosing one, excluding everything else, but you do this for you just go through each product and you exclude everything else in each ad. Group, yeah. Essentially. All right. It and it should only take you, let's say, an hour, maybe two tops if you have a lot of items. But it's the the best ROI on your time because it's actually going to give you like actionable data. Gotcha. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. We'll take a look at this later. I just I just think like if some people have like you know a thousand products, it's going to take like a whole week to set this up. No, so there's two things I'd say. You can um, you can do a lot of this in bulk. So you can do it within the ads manager or what's the name of it? The AdWords editor. Oh, Some the of it. offline one you can download? The AdWords yeah, editor. I mean, okay. you don't, you can't do as much as I'd like because you can't actually add the products. But you know what? Worst case scenario, hire a VA for a few hours to do this because it's pretty basic plug and play type stuff. Um, but there are a few other sort shortcuts I can talk about. The one other thing before we move on, I want to talk about though with PLAs is that you need to add tons of negative keywords. This I've been doing some uh, some PLA consulting for a couple different people, and I've noticed by far, in my opinion, their number one mistake is they don't have enough negative keywords. I'll say the number two mistake actually though, other than what we already talked about, is get rid of the mobile bid adjustment. Take the mobile bid adjustment and make it so it's zero uh, so negative 100 percent, and make it so it's only on desktops yeah i did that too because it's mobile i don't think anyone's really going to look on google for that or even if they're good they're look, going back on the desktop and look at it too so yeah and if you do want to do that make it a separate campaign that's only targeting mobile um i, I do want to say actually one more thing before we move on i am looking to start helping do some consulting for people with product listing ads and eventually this is another little teaser and info product about this, meaning like, you know, actually how to set it up. So if that's something you guys are interested in, email me, Travis, at buildmyonlinestore.com. Yeah, so one thing I had to double check, too, is for negative keywords, I've been using exact match for some clients, but I'm not sure if I should be moving to phrase just to cover more ground. Like, what do you do on this side? It, it depends, right? Like, so for me, I might use exact match on yellow pants if I'm advertising yellow dance pants, but I wouldn't do phrase match because people might say yellow pants for dance. So that scares me a little bit, but you know, play the numbers. If you, and you can see the list of all your different um, search results that match for yeah, your dimensions keyword. tab, right? Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so and so I'd, I'd export that and determine if you were to do phrase match, would it help you or hurt you, and it's a little bit more, you know, it's complicated to explain over yeah, a podcast. I, I guess I guess the safest way is to do exact, and if you have things that are cropping up in the dimensions search terms, you can then add that back in, rather than being phrase match, just blocking everything that actually might have something that could have converted, right? Yeah, but if it's something that you know for sure, this phrase will never, like for instance, for me, maybe khaki, yellow khaki pants, I, I can do phrase. I don't need to do exact match because my pants do not have khaki in them. So it's anything with that phrase. Yeah, so you, since we're on the dimensions tab, do you notice a lot of like irrelevant searches are getting shown up for that? Or has it gotten better over like the past year or two? Well, it's, it's hard for me to tell because it's gotten better for me, but I have probably about 5,000 negative keywords. Yeah. So okay, of course yeah, it's gotten true. better. Yeah, you've sculpted it a lot more. I'm just curious if the backend AdWords system has gotten smarter with like product targeting. Because like if you look at like, the feed, all you're doing is like you're specifying the product category, the type, the price, and like the title and description. And it kind of Google fills in the blanks from there too. Like, like it's really not that much data. I just wonder how they actually do it in the back end when they serve these impressions up too. I mean, keep in mind, Google's algorithm is going to try to optimize its profit. So it does want to show relevant things. But if you're willing to pay enough, it'll show it to 
slightly unrelevant things as well because it'll know Google knows they'll make money off of you. So yes and no, I guess. Exactly. Oh, I guess there's one thing about um, back in the PLA ad group. So one thing I noticed is that it always reverts to the highest bid if you have overlapping bids. So uh, if you're splitting each product up into like its own ad group, do you need like an another catch-all bucket set at like one cent or? I, I do personally, but my catch-all bucket, so for those people that don't know what Terry just was talking about, so you have, let's say, 50 different uh, ad groups with 50 different products, and then you could have another ad group that's specifically a catch-all, meaning that any product will potentially show up for that ad group. And the only reason that I personally have that is so if I forgot to create an ad group for one of the products, it'll show up there, and I can, I'll see I'll get them, I'll, I'll see I'm getting a lot of clicks, and I will do it. Uh, that's kind of up to you. It depends. It also depends on how surgical you want to be and, and things like that. I've noticed before in my catch-all ad group. So I've done it before where all my all my um, ad groups are set, let's say, at a dollar or above, and then my catch-all is set at fifty cents. And I notice I'm actually getting some decent traffic in my my catch-all. Yeah, and there's a couple different reasons. Well, part of the reasons have been some of my negative keywords weren't in the catch-all and. Or I I went in and I changed the a certain ad group below fifty cents, um, and so then in the catch-all ad group it was fifty cents. In the regular ad group that I made special for it, it was forty cents. So it was reverting to the catch-all. So there's pros and cons to doing that. Uh, that's really I you know it, it's up to you. Yeah, but I guess the important thing is like if your catch-all ad group, you don't want the bid to be higher than your regular ones. Otherwise, they're gonna get no traffic. Because if you if your catch-all is like at one dollar and your regular bids are fifty cents, they're gonna get nothing. Because AdWords just throws everyone to the catch-all one since the bid's higher too. So uh, just FYI. All right, cool. So let's uh, kind of not kill the horse on that one. <laughs> kind of probably knock some people's head out. So let's go to Facebook ads. So you've been doing some lead ads, video ads, and carousel ads. So let's kind of go through these three real quick. So lead ads, I, and I've done only a limited amount of testing, and I, I had to stop myself because uh, before I moved to Vegas, I had a, a ton of things that I need to get done, and I didn't want to learn a whole new platform. But the testing that I have done with lead ads is awesome. So lead ads, for people that don't know, it, right now it's only available on mobile, and basically what it is is an ad shows up in someone's mobile newsfeed, and it'll say something like, in my instance, it said, get our free 116-page DIY guide, and they can click learn more or download. I think I, I think a download. Uh, you can choose what the button says. There's like eight different options. So they can click download, at which point it pops up and it has their email already filled in and it says, do you want to submit your email to Be Dancewear? At which point they can say yes or no. But the magic of this is no more sending someone to a special lead page, no more having them have to enter their email and manually because Facebook already knows their email. So Facebook is making within two buttons, they can give you their email. And I was getting emails for I think around, I'd have to look at my numbers again, but 25 cents, which a normal scenario, that would be at least 250 minimum. So it's pretty good. Yeah. So I guess instead of like having someone go to your site to opt in, they can just click one button essentially is what leads as is for those who kind of got confused there. Yeah, I mean, it's basically you can the or your potential customers can give you their email without even having to leave Facebook, without having to type in their email. It's just as simple as it possibly could be. And I did some really like targeted targeting. I targeted just people that were dance studio owners or teachers, etc. And so 
I only got, let's say, you know, 120 emails, but those 120 emails are some good leads. Yeah, and if you convert like one or two of them, you know, you're in in, in the re- in the money already. In the black, I mean, yeah, exactly, yeah. Because um, what happens is red is good here in Asia, and green green is bad. Like in the stock market, it's reversed, but that's another topic. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like, how do you compare this with your Facebook ads? And are you using like uh, the same metrics, like say your conversion rate on a regular ads is X, but your lead ads is Y, so you would pay more for a lead ad? Or have you thought about this yet? Yeah, well, um, my experience so far, and I've I've probably spent around $1,000, not a lot uh, compared to other platforms that I feel like I know really well on Facebook ads. My experience is it's very hard to get conversions unless it's referral or um, retargeting traffic from Facebook. And the reason is uh, put yourself in your customer's situation, like position. If you're scrolling through your newsfeed and there's an ad for, especially something like my product where it's not like an uh, like an instant, like I want that kind of buy. So you're scrolling through your newsfeed and it's like, oh, dance shorts. Well, I don't really need those, but that looks interesting. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the website, you're going to search and be like, hmm, when I need dance shorts, I'll come back here. So I haven't seen a lot of direct conversion from my you know regular Facebook ads. Uh, some, uh, there's definitely been some. But I'm fairly confident that it's working uh, for other reasons. Basically, the pages per session is really high. That being said, with lead ads, I, that's what I really want. I really want them to give me their email. Like you know, so it, it, I feel like it kind of cuts out the foreplay. It's like, hey, dude, are we going to do this or not? And with the regular, you know, click ads, it's like, hey, I hope you like my stuff. Will you maybe give me your email? And then they say no, and maybe you never see them again. Yeah, yeah, true, true. You know, one thing. Uh, notice on Facebook now, it's kind of more like a content discovery thing. Do you notice they added a save for later thing on mobile now or in, and on desktop? Oh, I didn't know that. So, no. so what I used to do, I used to use Pocket. When I see a cool article, I would open it in my browser and then save to Pocket so I can read it later. But now there's a button in Facebook, one click, and it saves it within Facebook. You can look at like cool articles that you saved or bookmarked uh, later on. Too. And I heard Gary Vee talk about this too. He's like, well, you look at like what people are sharing now, I guess. it's A lot of it's like long-form content where it's like, you know, kind of cool read stuff instead of just like, you know, like this photo, that, that this update, that anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think Facebook is still a little bit of educating your customers, which kind of leads into video ads. Video ads do not have ROI in a typical sense. At least I don't know anyone that's convinced me that their video is making them direct money. So for people that don't know, a video ad is basically you pay Facebook per view that a a video you put up has. And one of the keys with video ads from what I've been told and what I've experienced personally is your video cannot be just a direct advertisement. It can't be you sitting there like, hey, look how awesome my store is. It's better if it's something that would be naturally shared on Facebook. So one I did try and it wasn't perfect because it was too long, but I did a video that was seven ways to DIY your dance costume and it got pretty good engagement. And the the key here was my targeting was targeted to, you know, my my whales, my greatest customers. And I was getting views for two cents a piece. So when you think about, you know, I can get a dance studio owner or a dance teacher to sit down and watch a video about my company indirectly for, you know, anywhere from one to five minutes. For two cents, that's that's a pretty good deal, but it's hard to see the direct ROI on that. Yeah, I feel like those vid- Facebook video stuff. It's almost like a lot of people share like comedy videos, like like the shit girls say, or like 
you know, like really funny stuff. Like you'd probably do like a shit dance studio owner say or like, you know, shit yoga teacher say and make it like some, something funny like they always yeah. say or I don't know. I feel like that stuff gets more traction on like Facebook from like what I've seen people share. Uh, just I so I basically just did this video at I did a few others as well just as a test I didn't want to go create a whole special video for it that's why my video is five minutes I wouldn't recommend that I'd recommend 30 seconds to a minute max but it's not even just about necessarily it doesn't necessarily just have to be hilarious it could be educational or interesting but it has to fit your your demographic yeah exactly yeah I, I just think funny stuff on Facebook tends seems to work better because everyone's just kind of like looking for a, you know dopamine hit that's true here yeah there, i mean yeah, yeah that's true who knows we'll see all right so let's uh, move on to carousel ads so carousel ads if you haven't seen them uh when you're on the mobile uh usually or even on desktop too it's like it'll be a ad but then you can scroll sideways and see like more product photos too basically and have you been using these or i actually haven't been using these but i've heard they work really well um I, though same thing with video ads uh, i think a lot of facebook marketers that actually do the paid advertising aren't necessarily they don't necessarily have an e-commerce store so people that say oh my video ads are doing really great it's because they're getting views for really cheap but same thing with carousel ads i've heard from a lot of people they work really well but most of the people i hear that they work really well aren't they don't necessarily know the return on investment numbers but it's something i want to try out I, from what i've heard they work well but i don't have the data to back it up i guess is what i'm saying yeah, and i guess the thing to see is that like are they doing info products or physical products? There's a huge difference. And I think a lot of people who don't do either one think it's across the board. I think especially like info products, oh, Facebook ads do this. But yeah, you're selling a digital ebook that's like 99% profit margin, not you know a product that you make for 40% and sell for 60% margin and deal with shipping and all this stuff too. So anyways, yeah, you know, if we do more about this, uh, we'll come back and revisit this. But just kind of to put carousel ads on your radar. You've probably seen it. If not, uh, kind of look into it just a little bit. All right, so YouTube. Let's go with this. Well, so YouTube is another one of those things. So a, a little side story. I'm moving to Vegas to live with a bunch of YouTubers who that's how they make all their money. They make it off ad revenue, which is different than the model that I'm going to adopt. But I believe in YouTube and I believe in this idea of making content. So if you can do it for your business, that's just amazing. So what we've been doing, if this is if you're somewhat new to the podcast with my business, so we sell dance clothing. So we've been doing how to DIY dance costumes, how to do stuff like that, arts and crafts stuff. We've gotten a tremendous amount of people calling us up and you know talking to my mom and saying, oh my God, is this Cindy, the lady from the YouTube channel? Yeah. And it, so it not only does it make a connection with their users, but I'll say this too. So I think we're getting around 800 or something like that views a day on our Facebook throughout all our different videos. My website is getting probably around the same number and maybe even less actually. And I spend, you know, $100 a day driving traffic. Plus I've had this website for 3 years. The YouTube channel, we don't put a lot of effort. I mean, we do put some effort into it, but compared to the amount of effort I've put into trying to get people to my website, it's insane. You can get views on YouTube so much easier than you can get views on your website. It's the second largest search engine in the world. Google's number one, then YouTube, then probably like Bing or Yahoo. I don't know. One of those other weird ones. There's no reason in my mind not to start making videos unless you have a really weird niche, I guess. Yeah. Like some weird adult niche that's Probably if you have a, a weird adult niche, then uh, <laughs> you could probably make some good videos and it would work. Actually, there was a lady I had her when I first started the podcast. She, she said her 
uh, most popular product was like some butt plug, and it had like eighty thousand views. You <laughs> <laughs> see, I mean that's free. That's free marketing. Yeah, exactly. You just go super niche, right? So, and so I guess I guess bring it back to something serious. So when you're looking at YouTube, uh, your focus is uh, referral traffic, right? Not watch time, or because I guess your revenue generation is different. Because like most people, I think who do ad revenue models they want people to watch the whole video right whereas like you just want people to go to your site is that something you track no you know what so i'd say there's two things um i am my focus is to make this youtube the best darn youtube channel that it can be but what i do try to do as well is at the end we have a if you want to get our full diy guide go to bdancer.com slash diy guide or something like that and it has a link in there that's an extra to me. My focus is making it the best darn YouTube channel that it can be. And naturally, the second will follow. I think too many marketers look at YouTube, look at everything for that matter. But YouTube, let's say specifically, they try to say, how can I get as many people to my website as possible? That'll come. I mean, I think the focus should be, how can I make this the most subscribers or the most watch time or the whatever? And then it's it's the jab, 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 right hook. It's like give, give, give. And then you can ask for something when you have 10,000 uh, viewers or subscribers, you know? Yeah, yeah, understood. Because, like, you know, if you have nothing, like, so you're asking to go to third base on the first date when you haven't even met yet or stuff like that. Yeah, right? and, and and that being said, I'm not against people. And, and, in fact, I highly encourage, if you are going to start a YouTube channel, have some kind of lead capture at the end. Say, hey, if you want to... Uh, first off, at the end of your video, definitely tell people to subscribe. A lot of YouTube channels don't do that. It's a That's just dumb, in my opinion. You should have a little outro that's, hey, subscribe to my video, and if you want to get my free whatever, or whatever your pitch is, try to get the email. Because even when you're a small YouTube channel, some people want to do it. But as you grow, more and more people will love your content and want more of it. So why not, from the very beginning, have that email capture? Yeah, there was an interview I saw with, I think, the head of the partners program at YouTube somewhere. And he was saying, like, hey, now you should not rely on ad revenue to make a living because, you know, it's probably not the safest thing. And, uh, you know, you make more money if you get, like, brand sponsorships or whatever. Right? Like, he was taking it, like, talking to, like, video bloggers, I guess. But it's interesting because he was also saying that, you know, as, you know, like, in the auction system, there's more and more videos produced every day. But there's not as many people bidding on that inventory in YouTube. So... A lot of CPMs, I guess, for the content producers keep dropping every year just because there's all these new videos. So, like, as a producer, if you're just relying on ad revenue, like, it's not going to be that good. Because YouTube, take, I think they take, like, 45% off the bat, too. Yeah. So, like, they actually make a lot of money. I mean, they still lose a lot of money as a company, from what I've heard. But as, like, a partner program, you know, you actually probably don't get as much as you should. Whereas if you went on your own, you know, develop your own line of products or your own branded stuff or JVs, it's probably a better thing. But... Yeah, another space though. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. I think that the ad revenue for anyone listening to this, ad revenue is going to be so minuscule compared to what you can make by promoting your brand. You know, and you just have no control over that too. Like you have no, you know, uh, leverage and anything on that too, and you don't own that channel. So, but uh, that's a whole other business topic. All right, so number five. Uh, this is a little weird. Uh, Snapchat. So I guess if you're listening to this, uh, maybe you have kids that are like, you know, 13 to 18. They're probably all over this Snapchat now. Uh, I kind of started using it last week. I kind of get it now. Uh, I've been following Gary Vee on Snapchat just because he's so bullish about it. I think we talked about this before the show. Uh, so, so one thing he posted was that 
uh, you know, he was going to New York on some flight, uh, watching some football game. So he took like a Snapchat video of like, you know, one or two seconds in each thing. And it was cool because you can see like what he's doing during a day. And I think that's the appeal of Snapchat because everything is deleted after 24 hours. And if you actually like screenshot it, uh, they get notified. And, you know, it's like an on-demand thing where if you miss it, it's gone. So people really want it. Wait, to wait, if you screenshot, who gets notified? So if you if I Snapchat uh, Snapchat something and you screenshot uh-huh. it, I get told that hey Travis took a picture of your <laughs> thing too. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing is things get deleted, so no one really cares about posting anything curated like on Instagram or Facebook where people want to look kind of cool, evergreen stuff like that. Everyone's like, oh, whatever. Like you know, like I heard when Snapchat first came out, the first pictures were people like taking a picture of their shit in the toilet. Like, it was like the the daily shit and like people would just do that it's gonna get deleted right so who cares it's just kind of funny like when you know something's gonna be gone and it's only there for 24 hours too wait a minute so everything like is there a way to say like have stuff be saved so it's it doesn't ever get deleted uh maybe but i don't really know the platform that well but i thought there's like stories or something like that yeah i think so yeah i just i still have to look into the platform some more but basically like i guess the big thing that gary's saying is that like a lot of people are on this now and even if you have only like a thousand followers like the engagement rate or like the watch rate on your stuff is usually really high whereas like if you're on twitter like to get a thousand people to see your tweet it's like impossible unless you have like you know a hundred thousand followers because there's so much noise on twitter now too whereas like snapchat and you can't really like spam ad people or anything you have to use it by the snap code or like the username so uh basically like someone if someone follows you like they want to follow you they can't just discover you uh somehow well in most cases so that is, and that's one of the things I, I was listening to some Gary V as well, and he said that's one of the big things people have a, a marketer specifically have a hard time with Snapchat is there's no natural organic way to find out uh, like you can't like in Twitter you can use hashtags and people can find out about your company or you can like comment on other people's tweets and they can find out about your company. It doesn't work like that in Snapchat. So I yeah yeah I, I think the way to do it is you would tease people with the content like say hey you know today I'm doing this I'm eating this or like whatever right and then. You would save that video and post it on somewhere else and be like, hey, if you want to see more of this, go to my Snapchat. Instead of just being like, hey, follow me, here's my snap code. In case you don't know what a snap code is, it's that yellow ghost thing with your picture on it and it has those dots. It's just like a QR code uh, for your profile, basically. Why is that? So why use that versus the username? Like, can't I just tell people, uh, you know, be dancewear on Snapchat? Yeah, well, they could just look at the picture and then scan it on their phone base they can save that image and then snapchat can add it i guess it's a little bit easier but you know if you have like a super long username or you can't remember or stuff like that too so but interesting i see some people make that their profile picture now you notice that um they want to yeah like they'll make their snap code or instagram uh their snap code so it's kind of interesting to see how everyone's kind of trying to drive people there too i so this is one of those things that I know I need to do. I really don't want to do because I don't. I don't need another thing to learn, especially because my market is, you know, uh, the people. But my market is on this. It's you know, little girls dancing. They're definitely using Snapchat. Uh, yeah, like every thirteen to seventeen year old is pretty much on Snapchat now, from what I've gathered. Like that's in the U.S. Because I play some you know, games on the iPads, and I'll, I'll like ask these kids. Hey, like, I was gonna this? say, watch, watch <laughs> what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I play, I play like Clash of Clans. Right? It's just like a simple, you know, kind of iPad game. And we have a lot of kids in that clan. I'm like, oh, like so what's the deal with Snapchat? Oh yeah, everyone's on this now because Facebook's not cool anymore because our parents are on it, and you know, we just use Snapchat and Instagram basically. I 
wonder what's going to come out. So uh, this is, I just want to say this is a side tangent. Gary Vee also talks about how there's this pendulum swing. So people like things that are private. Then they like things that are open. So originally it was like private forums. Then it was like MySpace and Facebook. Now it's private again. I, I can't wait for it to be open again because I feel like that's a lot better for uh, marketers for sure. But also it's just more my style. That's what I grew up and with. And the thing is like these platforms always change every five to ten years. Like you look at like MySpace ten years ago, it was so huge and now it's like nothing. Basically, yeah. right. So it's like Facebook these, was really private when it first started, and it was like yeah. super exclusive. Now it's for everyone and your grandma, literally. Yeah, but I guess the point is like to like be aware of where the tension shifts, because you know, as a marketer, that's what you want, right? The tension, and if you can be ahead of the curve, uh, more you know, eyeballs for you down the line too. Alrighty, so I guess uh, that's it for Snapchat. Anything else or? No, I just do want to reiterate, if you're interested in learning more about product listing ads, whether it's through consulting or you have questions, email me, Travis at, how to, or Travis at buildmyonlinestore.com. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I might have you look at my uh, ad groups later once I get it set up. So, already cool. All right. I guess that's it for this week. We'll catch you guys next time. And uh, nice internet's working uh, again, too. So, I guess everyone listening, uh, last week we tried to record, but uh, actually in Vietnam here, they had... Uh, like a communist party election over the weekend. So I guess they were throttling the internet and we couldn't Skype uh, last week. So there was no episode. So hope you guys enjoyed this and we'll see you in uh, two weeks. See you guys later.